0: It feels so good to be back. Yeah. yeah. Polo. Ursh, baby Zone four. Oh, oh, oh. How you doing, oh, yeah. Gucci? Yeah. Huh. Zone six. Mm-hmm. six five, yeah. Ain't nothing weird. Welcome back to Smarter Than The Average Bear. I'm your host AJ, better known as Bear, and this is episode three. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming back, uh, joining me again. Uh, as always, if you like the show, please rate, review it, um, five stars preferably, but uh, anything, any feedback that you can give, I'll totally accept. And uh, we're gonna get right into it this week with top five. Top five, no debater. Top five, top five, top five. Thank you, Drake. I hope the intro didn't give it away, but uh, this week's top five is going to be a little bit different here. Uh, I was struggling to put together a theme for this particular episode's top five, and doing a little research, I found out that on January 27th, Usher's hit record, Yeah, will have released 17 years ago uh, on the 27th, so yeah, I'm getting old. Extremely old, because I vividly remember when this record dropped. Uh, and it's, it's definitely one of my favorite songs. Uh, obviously, one of Usher's hits. But for the top five today, I'm going to give you my top five favorite Usher songs. Starting with number five, and uh, I'm going to say I cheated because I couldn't make a selection here. But uh, on number five, I'm going to go with My Boo slash Nice and Slow. Uh, Nice and slow dropped when I was in elementary school. Um, Still a banger. If you've never said uh, seven o'clock on the dot and you're in your drop top cruising the streets. Yeah, then I can't trust you. Um, And everybody already knows the duet with uh, Usher and Alicia Keys was tremendous. Uh, I think it's probably one of those favorite prom songs, wedding day songs, uh, dancing with somebody you love songs. So that definitely had to make the list. So those two are coming in at number five. At number four, we're going to have Love in This Club. I personally picked the remix version because I think it's better. uh, And Lil Wayne snapped on it. And Beyonce as well. But um, either version, whatever whatever floats your boat on this one. And whatever version you would prefer, that's perfectly fine. Um, But I'm going to go with the remix version for mine. Um, For number three, we're going to go with You Don't Have to Call. And... This is off Usher's second album, uh, 8701, which I think was probably like at the time you don't have to call it probably his earliest club banger, so to speak. Uh, still goes. You got Diddy talking shit in the background, which is always hilarious. But um, I just think the video, the song, everything was was one of those that I always refer back to uh, from an Usher standpoint, and it definitely had to make an appearance in my top five. So I think it's fair to slot this at number three. I think that's uh, it's not too high, not too low. Uh, so it gives it the right amount of uh, value in my top five. Uh, for number two, I'm going to go with Superstar. This is off the Confessions album, which I think undoubtedly is, is Usher's best album. Um, but I'm going with Superstar, and I think that... Uh, had it not been for the number one song on this list, I think Superstar would probably be my clear-cut favorite song that Usher's ever released. Um, just the way he's singing, uh, hyping up his girl, telling her like she'll be his superstar. I, I think that's a tremendous song, uh, but it has to go to number two because... Ultimately, the greatest song that uh, probably has ever been released as far as uh, just singing and and hoping for your girl back and and telling her all the wrongs that you've done, uh, Confessions. And I think you guys would probably take back some of my credibility if I didn't say that this was the number one song. Going to be hard to argue this one from from anybody's standpoint. Um, I think the time it dropped, it's still one of those songs that I don't know a single person that doesn't know the lyrics to confessions. Uh, even the intro where he's like, I'm in the studio, like all of that. It's just a fantastic song. Terrible uh, what it's about, but the song is fantastic. So that's going to round out my top five there. Uh, starting back from number five, we've got my boo and nice and slow. Number four is going to be loving the club remix. Number three is going to be, you don't have to call. Number two is going to be superstar. And of course, number one, confessions. That's going to take care of top five for us this week. And we're going to jump right back into the show here and start with some NFL talk. To be honest, I didn't record last week and for a number of reasons that we're not going to get into. But uh, I will say that had I recorded last week, I will say up front that my two particular selections that I thought were going to take place for uh, the two championship conference games this week, I would have selected Green Bay and the Chiefs to to be the two representing, representing teams uh, in the Super Bowl. I just thought that Aaron Rodgers was playing at a high enough level that they were going to be able to continue to dominate being at home. Uh, Tom Brady hadn't looked as, I guess, superior, as you would say, as he has in the past. Obviously, being you know into his early 40s, he's not going to be the Tom Brady of old. Uh, and I just thought that the cards are kind of in place for Green Bay. You know, they took they took a, an ass whooping last year uh, in the conference championship, and I I just really felt like things were aligned for them to be able to to have a really good showing today and potentially walk out of this game with a win and, and head to Super Bowl. I was wrong, and and I don't like saying that, but I will say that you know um, my thoughts uh, on what Tampa Bay could and. Uh, possibly would do in this game did not shape out to how they looked Um, with Tampa getting the win at 31 to 26. Some things that jumped off the page to me when watching this game. Uh, Number one, Kevin King, boy, he had a rough day. I mean, rough day. Uh, If you can think back to uh, the previous couple episodes that I've talked about, uh, we talked a lot about uh, Sean Wade from Ohio State and how he struggled to defend and cover people um, in these in these high-caliber you know, games uh, in the playoffs. And I think that, uh, boy, if there was an, an NFL replica of Sean Wade, it'd be Kevin King because he was on the back end of some some awful plays. Um, number one, giving up the early touchdown on Mike Evans on third and nine. Uh, and number two, right before halftime, um, nothing quite bad breaks you as a defense and as a team as much as giving up a touchdown right before halftime. Um, You're in cover three, so there's really nothing, you know, preventing you from being the deepest man and the widest man in your protection. Uh, And if you watch that play, Kevin King's eyes are locked in the backfield and not on Scotty Miller, who, uh, to my knowledge, uh, to my first understanding and learning about this, Scotty Miller is a speed demon. Um, which is hilarious, and we'll talk about that another day. But if I just watch a highlight of him running track and just walking guys down, um, and so if I can see that information, I know the Green Bay Packers have that information. So if you're a defensive back with less than ten seconds to go in the half, and you're lined up over Scotty Miller in cover three, there's no reason for you to be looking in the backfield. Just take off back into your zone. And make sure that you don't give up a touchdown. If you give up three points there, your offense still is in fighting range. You're only down seven after playing a pretty poor half. But instead, you give up a touchdown there and you go into halftime down 11. And then you come right out of halftime. And then you give up um, a short underneath pass that ends up being a fumble. And they scoop it and run it back inside the 20 for Tom Brady to score again. Uh, Which is going to lead me to my next point, which is... The turnover game, Green Bay won the turnover game. But listen to these numbers. Green Bay had two turnovers. Off of those two turnovers, Tampa Bay scored 14 points. So we got the touchdown. After the interception, we got the touchdown right before halftime. And then we got a um, an Aaron Jones fumble that results in another touchdown right after halftime. So that's in, in about Four minutes of game time, three minutes of game time, actual game time, Tampa Bay scores 14 points off of Green Bay turnovers. Green Bay, on the other end, had three turnovers that they got from Tom Brady interceptions. Green Bay scored six points on those. You can't win these big-time games only scoring six points off of three turnovers. That's plus eight for Tampa Bay right there. In the two turnovers that they got. Eight points wins you the game. A touchdown wins you the game. Green Bay was inside uh goal to go twice uh, in this game. They threw three straight incompletions to Devontae Adams. Two of the three, I don't mind the call. I thought the first down call was absolutely correct. And, you know, lucky for Tampa Bay, it's not complete. But I think, you know, Green Bay probably completes that pass ten times out of nine. Uh, it's just a back shoulder throw to Devontae Adams. It's all about timing and and rhythm with your quarterback. And I think that uh, nobody in the league probably has more rhythm and timing than those two. Uh, it's just a misfire on that play. Not a bad play, just a misfire. I didn't too much like the second down call where you line up trips into the boundary and then you roll into the boundary um, and try to throw a, a, a quick throw to Devontae. It just... Just didn't seem like the best usage of their talent and and the other weapons that they have on the field. The third down play I thought was pretty pretty crafty. Um, you you run a lot of slants with Devonte and just getting the ball out of their hands quick. So it's almost like a slant and go. Uh, but he stems it a little bit further inside, drawing that safety downhill to kind of jump that route and then breaks it upfield. I mean, it was a great call. They were just a split second behind uh, and and Devontae wasn't able to get his feet down because the throw let it let his body out of bounds. Um, but, yeah, that results in three. and it's, it's a tough one. But I don't too much put emphasis on that one because the second time that you had uh, first and goal, You, you're down five, nope, excuse me, you're down eight, and you're five minutes, a little bit about five minutes to go in the game. Uh, I can't quite remember what happened on the first two plays, but I really wanted to put emphasis on the third down play. Uh, This was a play where Aaron Rodgers steps up in the pocket, he scrambles a little, or excuse me, steps up in the pocket, moves the pocket a little bit. Uh, ends up firing one incomplete into double coverage, trying to force one into Devontae. Uh, typically I would not second guess an Aaron Rodgers decision, but on this, I just feel like he should have run the ball. I feel like he had so much space to, and Aaron Rodgers is not a slow guy. He's not particular. uh, He's not Lamar Jackson, but he's not slow. Um, we've seen him multiple times, break people's backs with his feet, uh, just like last week, he scored he scored a touchdown last week, us, utilizing his feet. And I feel like there was a lot of space there. And I don't know if 30-something-year-old Aaron Rodgers is going to scramble for eight, nine yards to score on that play. But he's sure as hell going to pick up four or five yards. And now it's fourth down from the three. I think that's a little bit different play call when it's fourth and goal from the three and you're down eight. Versus trotting at your kicker to pick up those three points. Um, and, and obviously, it turned out to be a crucial point in the game because they never get the ball back. Um, and they don't get any stops. And Tampa Bay's going on to the Super Bowl because of it. Um, so, I was wrong on that play. Uh, I thought the third down, the third down holding call was the correct call. Um, you could argue that they let some go that were even more egregious than that. And, uh, you know, I'd agree with it. But uh, when it comes down to it, the the official saw that it was a hold and he called it. And you can't be upset with that because that's the right call. All right. And now that we're going to look into the AFC game, which was which had the Chiefs and the Bills. um, This game really pretty much went the way that I had assumed that it was going to go. I don't have a lot of breakdown and analysis from it. Uh, there are a couple things that I saw, but for the most part, I expected the Chiefs to come out and, and dominate from an offensive standpoint, and they did. Um, when you've got all the talent on offense that they got, they get uh, uh, Edwards Hilaire back. Mahomes is not like on the ground trying to find his eyeballs <laughs> from a concussion, so like you get him back, and he's slightly healthy. I know that he's still got that the turf toe injury, so he's a little bit less mobile than he has been, but... Ultimately, like if that man has a clear mind on his, on his head and he's got, you know, both arms and can stand up right, like eh, I'm going to take him nine times out of 10. Um, but one thing that kind of not jumped off the page to me, but one thing that you can't have, uh, and we talked about this in the Notre Dame Alabama game. We talked about this in the Ohio State and Alabama game. When you're playing a high powered offense you can't, as the underdog, as the less higher-powered offense, you can't put up threes. Uh, you can't settle for field goals when you know the guy on the other end is is hunting touchdowns. And I think that's one of the things that, that really plagued the Bills. You know, they got close a number of times. And whether it was settling for a field goal um, or it was throwing interceptions in the red zone, like you just can't. Give up points or can't give up scoring opportunities to a team that you, you ultimately can't stop from scoring. Um, and that's why I say that that game kind of played out the way that I had expected it to on the front end. Um, looking at Josh Allen, I thought that he played decent. Um, but I, I do think that the game was a little bit too big for him at the moment. I'm not saying that he won't progress to get there, but you could definitely tell. Um, he felt a lot more pressure in this game to compete and do well than Patrick Mahomes did. Uh, And I think that, you know, moving forward in his future, when he gets back to this position, he'll have a little bit more um, experience playing in a bigger time game. So it's going to be a little bit easier for him to manage and do things. But I just thought that, you know, he had a pretty mediocre game. Um, From a stats perspective, he was 28 of 48. He threw for 287 with one pick, Uh, and I say that one pick because, I mean, to be quite honest, he probably should have thrown three. Uh, There were two that couldn't have hit the Chiefs defender in any better spot directly in their hands, and they dropped it. Uh, But the thing that was kind of glaring to me was the bad sacks that Josh Allen took, Um, and I think that... Why I say it was glaring is because you watched the, the Tampa Bay game early in the day and you know Brady doesn't always do the, the correct thing or the right thing, but he does really really small things that make a lot of difference. and I say that because when when Tampa Bay was up five, late in that game, they had set up a backside bubble screen to the wide receiver and Tom Brady catches the ball and immediately chucks it in the ground. And I bring that play up because it was busted from the beginning and it probably wasn't going to be successful regardless of how hard he would have tried to, to, to make that completion to make it successful. But he spikes the ball, not spikes it, but he chucks it directly into the ground to avoid a sack and they line up and hit a, a pretty, you know, chip shot, if you could say, field goal to go up eight. That's important when you're making small plays like that to continue to leave your 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 offense, and your team in a position where they're able to make those type of plays and scoring opportunities. And Josh Allen just took some really bad sacks that put them behind the markers and down in distance that it's hard to make up when when you only have a run game that outside of Josh Allen, they only had 11 carries combined for three running backs. We know you're you're throwing the football, so if that's the case, like, it's a much easier game to defend you when we know you're relying on throwing the ball. Um, and so when you take bad sacks and we know what's coming, it's it's going to be hard to, to get yourself out of that hole. Uh, and I think that that's one thing that, you know, really stuck out to me and I think will be um, an area where you see Josh Allen start to improve next year. Um, hopefully, like, you know, he won't try to ex- – you, you want him to continue to try to extend plays, but you don't want him to do it uh, – in the event of going backwards to extend those plays. Uh, you see that a lot with Lamar Jackson, where he'll he'll try to escape backwards to make plays. And a lot of times he gets out of it just because of his his speed. But, you know, as, as you start to have that maturation in a quarterback, you'd like for him to step up into the pressure and then escape through the pocket. Uh, so when you're stepping up, it's much easier to, you know, take off running forward or Get rid of the ball when you see pressure coming or you feel pressure coming versus operating backwards where now you've got to throw the ball further to, you know, get it past the line of scrimmage to complete something downfield. Or you've got to escape either further backwards to get away from pressure. Uh, It just it just doesn't bode well for the quarterback when he's moving backwards away from where they're trying to go. Um, Mahomes on the other end, like he's pretty damn good still. Uh, I know this is this is not any new news to you all. But I mean, comes out after a, you know, com- coming out of concussion protocol, probably still got a really bad foot, uh, and he goes twenty nine to thirty eight, throws for three hundred and twenty five yards and three TDs. Uh, nothing spectacular, but just just some of the things that he does to keep plays alive. Uh, when we were just talking about Josh Allen, you know, taking bad sacks, Mahomes just being able to have enough body control to accept some bit of a hit and still get the ball delivered. Uh, on target or knowing when to get rid of the ball so he doesn't uh, take a sack. Like, he was only sacked once this game, and I just really think that a lot of times, like, some of the thing, I know that the, the commentators and the people covering the games really like to exploit the the no-look passes and the underhand tosses, but some of the things he does when he's almost about to get sacked and, you know, stretches the play for another four yards or completes a ball instead of taking a sack or, Gets rid of one instead of taking a sack. Like, let's just go a long, long way. Um, and I mean, he's he's the, he's the guy doing it at the top level right now. So uh, good for him. Good for the Chiefs. We've got a Super Bowl set, guys. It's going to be the Chiefs and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We got two weeks to go before we get there. Um, one of the, one of the things in that game that's going to be big is Kansas City not having Eric Fisher. Uh, because that that front line for Tampa Bay, their defensive defensive line is tremendous on getting pressure on the quarterback, and to not have one of your studs on the offensive line, it's going to matter in this game. I'm not going to say it's going to completely swing the game in Tampa Bay's favor, but it's certainly going to matter. It'll be something that I'm watching, uh, not only as we get close to this game, but in the 60 minutes of the game. Speaking of the Super Bowl, one thing that I would be remiss if I did not speak about it is uh, black head coaches or black coaches in general, excuse me, not black head coaches, because uh, there's not many of those. But black coaches, um, we're going into this game and we've got a plethora of them in in, in extremely important positions for this game. Um, coming from the Kansas City side, you got offensive coordinator Eric bien who I think we could all agree was one of the top names uh, in coaching candidacies uh, during this new head coaching cycle that we've just kind of gone through and completed. Um, He did not get a a head coaching opportunity from one of the seven teams that were available. Uh, There's one still remaining, which is the Houston Texans. And if I'm the enemy, I don't know if I take that job. And I say this understanding that there's not a lot of black head coaches and they're not getting a lot of opportunities, but at some point in time, like you've got to, you know, wait it out and get a, a, a good situation and get a good team. You know, a lot of these black head coaches, they, because they're not getting opportunities have to take the bottom of the barrel opportunities where they go, where they're going to Miami's or New York's or, Uh, Houston's or Jacksonville's and stuff like that. And you're you're setting yourself up for uh, failure because these teams, these organizations from the top down are already poor. Uh, And I don't mean that from a financial standpoint. I just mean that from an operational standpoint. And when you accept these jobs, you know, it's it's a ticking time bomb. Um, And they know when they're not going to get results, they'll blame it on the head coach, although it's not his fault. You know, we look at Jim Caldwell and the Lions. They were just coming out of the playoffs when he was fired for Matt Patricia. They haven't even sniffed being competitive since then. Uh, And he was fired after making the playoffs. So you just don't get these opportunities a lot. And I'd love to see a a point where they can get these opportunities in good cultures and good organizations to really showcase uh, what they're able to do. On the Tampa Bay side, you've got a, an abundance of black coaches, which you know I really want to applaud Bruce Arians and, and that organization for really being on the forefront of that. Uh, Byron Lefwich is their offensive coordinator. Todd Bowles is their defensive coordinator. Keith Armstrong is their special teams coordinator. And Harold Goodwin is their assistant coach and their running game coordinator. All black males in all top positions of power in that coaching staff outside of obviously you got bruce Arians still leading the charge but a lot of great talent in there uh but another thing i want to point out is they've also got two minority female coaches on their staff as well so they're really trying to uh not only be inclusive of minority males but also being inclusive in females in general But then taking that a step forward and having minority females on their coaching staff as well. So couldn't let that pass by without uh, giving a shout out to that. And again, the reason why I bring this up, we just had seven coaching vacancies uh, this year, excuse me. And only one of those coaching vacancies went to someone that was a minority, which was Robert Salah getting the the Jets head coaching job uh, after being one year as the San Francisco defensive coordinator. You've also got, in the last three years, there have been 20 openings for head coaching positions, and only three have gone to minorities, including this this most recent one with Robert Salah. You've also got Brian Flores in Miami, and you've got Ron Rivera in Washington. I bring that up because... Those two points and, and really focusing on the Robert Salah point, uh, just this or just this past year, the NFL adopted a new rule where if a team loses a minority assistant coach or uh, an executive or if they lose an assistant coach that becomes a head coach or a, per, a personnel executive that becomes a GM, that team gets a third round pick in the next draft and the following draft. So two third round picks. If the team loses two, a combination of two uh, assistant or personnel that turns into a GM, they would then receive three third round picks. That rule just went into place last year and we've only had one team that's even going to sniff getting these picks because of that rule. And it just goes to show that even though they're putting these things in into into the atmosphere, into you know the cycle, it's still not changing how people uh, look at minority coaches. and And I also want to point out the Rooney Rule, which forces a team. I know forces is a bad word, but uh, it requires a team to interview a minority for the head coaching position every time there's a vacancy. Uh, while this sounds tremendous, and I think that it has allowed black people. Uh, excuse me, black men, as well as minority men, a chance to get their foot in the door. Um, one of the issues that I really have here is it it's almost just like a, it's almost like a secondary thing now of, all right, well, we interviewed our one minority. Let's now go give the job to, to a white man that we want to. Uh, and the the one thing that I hate about the Rooney rule is I think if it wasn't in place, it, it really, highlight and, and, and show you guys how glaringly poor, uh, of an opportunity or a chance that black people and people of minority, uh, are getting at these head coaching positions, because to be quite honest, I don't, I don't really believe that if this Rooney rule was in place, people would even be interviewing, uh, minority head coaches, uh, at the clip that they're doing now, I'd see there would be far less people, um, of minority having their names uh, in a hat to even be considered as head coaching jobs. And so I think that while the Rooney rule is intended to do really good things, one of the things that I'm seeing here is you kind of get to check that box of saying, oh, well, we did our due diligence. We interviewed this one guy. Uh, Now we can go on and do what else we want to do. And I really just think that uh, it's sad because I think there's a lot of very, very qualified coaches getting passed up because of the color of their skin, which um, doesn't shock me, but is saddening to see. Um, And unfortunately, like I don't foresee the NFL. That's uh, 32 owners are all white. I don't really see it changing um, anytime soon. Take a quick break. And then we'll come back with another little highlighted area that I really wanted to touch on this week and close out the show. All right. We're back with Smarter Than the Average Bear. Um, Wanted to take a minute to reflect on something that happened this past week. Um, As you all know, the famous um, baseball player, Henry Hank Aaron, uh, passed away. And I really wanted to take a second to to really highlight his greatness. Um, Because I think that uh, for a black kid myself that played baseball, like, uh, the stories that you would hear about Hank Aaron and 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 the videos that you would see from back in the day, and the way that all the black baseball players that were in the national or that were in the the major leagues would talk about Hank Aaron, you, know, you really got to process like how tremendous he really was and how much of a, um, a uh, an idol and a and someone that you would look up to as a role model he really was, and so I wanted to take a minute to reflect on some of the greatness that came with with what he provided to the game. In 1982, he was finally selected into the Hall of Fame after a 21-year career. Uh, in that career, he had one MVP, but he also finished third six times. Uh, and over the course of his career, right now he ranks top ten uh, all time in in MVP votes gathered or collected. So although he only had one, obviously he was in the conversation uh, a number of times uh, over the course of his career. Uh, as you all know, or are probably familiar with, he had 755 home runs, um, which was the record that stood for so long until Barry Bonds broke it. Uh, but one thing that I thought that was that was really eye-opening in this was uh, probably the home run you all have seen the most was the home run for 715, which broke the then uh, home run total and King Babe Ruth's record of 714. Uh, Why I put so much emphasis on home run 715 is for two reasons. One, he did this while also having like a huge amount of death threats and and, and really racist kind of uh, comments and things coming his way because people did not want him to break Babe Ruth's record. And so I thought that that was, like, extremely tremendous that, you know, even against those odds of having, like, that much uh, – of people opposed to you doing something still goes out there and breaks the record. Uh, and then the second point there is if you remember the trot as he turns second, yeah, uh, two white guys just run up and pat him on the back. Uh, and they're so excited to, to be that close to Hank Aaron and and patting him on the back and, and really celebrating that 715th home run with him, And yeah, I just can't quite imagine that ever happening again. Like how did two people get, From the stands, not just a baseball game, any game, and really get that close to someone who uh, had just broken a record that all eyes are on without like getting shot, tackled, you know, tased, clothesline, anything. That's it's wild to me. And I think that that's what makes that video even more memorable is like you just see like the. The, the excitement of those two guys as they get on the field and they get to, you know, pat Hank Aaron on the back and run like 20 feet with him while he's having this this glorious celebration of breaking the, the all-time home run record. Uh, during his career, he had 3,771 hits. That's tremendous. Not only for the amount of hits, but it's also tremendous because if you take away every one of his home runs, he still has over 3,000 hits. In a major league career. That's uh, it's just it's mind blowing to even like consider those numbers along those same lines. He's the only player in major league baseball history to have hit 20 home runs in 20 consecutive seasons. That's insane to me. That's insane to me. This man hit 20 home runs 20 times. No one's ever done that. It's mind blowing. Uh, he's a World Series champion. He's a three-time Golden Glove winner. He's a two-time batting champion. Uh, he's a 25-time All-Star. The most all-time in, in that efforts. And I know that's kind of weird because I told y'all that he played uh, 21 years. But in from 59 to 62, they had multiple All-Star games. And so... That's why you see that he has more all-star games than years that he competed in still tremendous feat. The only years that he did not appear in all-star game were his rookie season and his final season. Um, he's also enshrined in the MLB all century team, which I mean, if you think over a hundred years, uh, and for the majority, I would say at least half of those years, uh, Black people were not really able to play the game. For him to be elected into that uh, All-Century team is is an accomplishment and a feat in itself. Here's some other little tidbits that I thought were kind of cool. Some of them statistics, some of them just life things that I, I learned. Um, he dropped out of high school to play in the Negro Leagues. Um, and really that propelled his career because at that point in time, that's right around the time that Jackie Robinson was breaking the color barrier. Uh, There was a little bit more added light uh, to the Negro Leagues and the amount of talent that they had in that league uh, and ultimately propelled him and his career to the point where it ended up being. Um, I say that because also at 15 years old, he tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers, wasn't able to make the team, but even at 15, like he knew he was good enough and that was going to be his mark in the world and what he wanted to do so then to come back, drop out of school and just be like, "Yep, this is what I'm going to put my my entire focus to." Uh, is something that I think is outstanding as well. He led the home run, he led the league in home runs for 5 consecutive years. That's not that wild, but the years that he led the home run or led the league in home runs was his age was 35, 36, 37, 38 and 39. So, this man in in the end of his career Led the league five consecutive years in home runs. Like that's just out. That's just tremendous. I, I, like I can't put it into words. Like how like that's just not something that you would expect to see. Or think about this: when he retired, like we still haven't seen it since that point in time. Uh, and that's you know he retired prior to me uh, coming into this world. So in my lifetime, I haven't seen anyone get close to this, which is insane. Um, He walked more times than he ever struck out in his career. Again, insane. When you see people who double up now in strikeouts to walks, uh, to see someone for a career walk more than striking out is, you know, I think that that truly puts emphasis on his approach at the plate and also like his pitch selection and how he kind of operated once he got in the batting box, which, again, just a tremendous, tremendous feat. He had 10 seasons of 30 plus home runs and fewer than 65 strikeouts. So, again, like he's doing as, as someone who would would be probably ranked as a power hitter uh, because of where he ended with career home runs, he was still able to be productive at the plate without striking out. Um, so, although he's swinging for power, he's not chasing bad pitches, he's not putting. His team or himself in a deficit by going up there, striking out and chasing home runs, which I think is something that we see nowadays in games where if you're a power hitter, you're looking at 100 plus strikeouts in a season. So on top of that, he never had a season with more than he never had a season with 100 strikeouts and he had five seasons of less than 65 strikeouts. Just, again, another tremendous feat. And I I pair that on the back of saying baseball seasons are 162 games. He played 149 games a season for at least 16 years of his 21-year career. So it wasn't like he had a lot of days off that were lowering these numbers. He was still pretty much going out there regularly, uh, competing at a high level, and still not striking out. He also has 6,000. 856 total bases, which is the most in history. Um, For those of you that are not familiar with the game of baseball, total bases is basically, uh, let's say you hit a double. That counts as two bases. If you hit a home run, that counts as four bases. So every time you have a hit, uh, however many bases you touch during that approach is how many total bases you've collected. He has 6,856 of those, which is 722 more than the second place player. He's also the all-time RBI leader with 2,297 RBIs. Um, there is one active player who has more than 2,000, which is Albert Pujols, but he's also a quite I would say, I think he's a little bit more than 100 behind, and Albert may have another season or two in him, so he'll be the closest person that would have a chance to break that record, but uh, still just outstanding for how long that record has lasted uh, as of yet. And the two things that I want to end this with were the two most startling things that I found uh, doing some research about Hank Aaron and really go to, I guess, strengthen how important he was to this game uh, and also what type of man he was, uh, not just a player, but um, as a human being. The first part is, uh, is a quote from an article that I read that says, once the Cubs saw the attendance and turnout for fans to come see Hank Aaron, that really propelled their efforts towards getting the the rights to Ernie Banks. If you're not familiar with Ernie Banks, he is Mr. Cub. He is probably one of, if not the most well-known Chicago Cup player of all time. And so the Chicago Cubs, from seeing how how people um, responded to seeing Hank Aaron play baseball uh, as a black man, again, in a game that wasn't geared towards having African-American players in their league, once they saw the turnout on theirs, they were like, oh, oh well, we got to get in on this mix. And that led to them going out and getting probably the best player of their franchise's history. Um, and then the last part here is a quote, and I'm going to read it as the direct quote. The only man I idolize more than myself. That quote came from Muhammad Ali and he was speaking about Hank Aaron. I don't know if I've ever heard Muhammad Ali talk so highly about someone, not himself. And so for him to, who have put those words on paper about Hank Aaron, go to show you everything about this man that was great and everything about him that we will miss. I hope you all take some time to, to look into Hank Aaron and his life uh, and the and the things he accomplished. really just want to say rest in peace to a legendary man as well as a legendary ball player. Hank Aaron, you will be missed. And as we end today's show, I want to... Take a moment here and, and go through our People Matters. And and I know this is normally an area where I really, you know, hyper-focus on one particular thing that I've saw or, or seen over the week. It uh, really just highlights some, some great things that people are out here doing. Uh, but I'm in a rather happy mood. And there were three things that actually uh, came up this over the past week, week and a half. Uh, I know I didn't record last week. Uh, but three things that I really wanted to highlight and speak about. Uh, Bernie Sanders, he's number three, and we're not talking about the, the meme, uh, which was tremendous, probably getting overused now, but still tremendous. Uh, but Bernie Sanders uh, and his team from that meme ended up putting it on a sweatshirt, charged $45 for it, and they sold out immediately. Um, and that's not the feat, but the the, the greatest part about that is 100%... Uh, of the money donated for the sweatshirts was given to Meals on Wheels, Vermont. Uh, And as someone who has uh, participated in Meals on Wheels a number of times here in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, I can tell you that it's a tremendous, tremendous foundation that does a lot of great things for people that really desperately needed uh, that assistance. And I really can't say enough about Bernie Sanders and his team for having the 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 mindset and their approach to say okay i know this is something hilarious and funny that the internet loves like let's try to make the best out of this situation and uh they're doing that at a high level right now so hats off to bernie sanders and his team uh that's people matters 101 right there uh number two is for a man named gene i don't have gene's last name i apologize for that uh but gene lives on skid row uh, and if you know anything about Skid Row, it's one of the, um, it's one of the, but the really hyper, uh, visualized areas of Los Angeles that, um, is home to a lot of, of homeless residents in that city. And, um, through some donations and foundations, uh, they were collecting money to help, uh, some assistance with, uh, the homeless congregation there, but, Uh, there was a large food donation as well, uh, given to the people at this time. Uh, Gene getting this, this, this abundance of food could have 1000% been in the right to be selfish and keep it for himself to, uh, to make sure that he had meals that would last him for quite some time and, and could really, you know, help offset some of the hunger issues that he has. But no, that's not what Gene does rather than keeping it for himself. He decided to cook meals uh, for other homeless people that were inhabitants of Skid Row. I think that this goes for itself to show just, you know, the, the selflessness of human beings is something that we all could take uh, a page out of Gene's book here and, and, and try to be a little bit more selfless uh, when it goes to understanding that, hey, if I've got an abundance, there's there's areas where I can share to, to not only promote, you know, what what I would consider is uh, a good deed, but also, you know, just just taking the time to say, like, if I've been blessed with something like it's my right, it's 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 my job to then be a blessing to somebody else on that same kind of token. I wish that I had more information to tell you about how to um, donate to to Gene and other people in or that are that are living in or around Skid Row. Um, I know there's a number of things that you can Google in in secondary steps to take to, you know, provide some assistance. Um, I would implore you, like, take a look and and try to donate there. I think that or or, or try to donate in your city or, or wherever you live. I think that it's something that we all could do and be better about. It's not just donating to people that are homeless, but just taking the time to step back and think about how fortunate we are and look at areas where we can provide some assistance to people in our lives. And number three on this list is Eugene Goodman. And if you're not familiar with Eugene Goodman, he is the black uh, police officer who led rioters away from the Senate chambers during the uh, the racist riots of January 6th. I guess that's what we're gonna call it. That's what I'm gonna call it. Uh, but Eugene, and there's there's a number of images online of you know him trying to protect uh, the Capitol. Uh, him having very minimal backup and still trying to perform his job and, and keep, you know, the workers and the people that come to that capital and the people that were inside that capital safe uh, at a time of some really, really much needed time of security. There wasn't being had at other places uh, in the capital. Eugene stepping forward and doing all of those things, you know, it in a country that not, has not necessarily put uh, black men um, and protected them or put them first, uh, he put the country first in protecting the the capital and the people that, um, I guess, carry out the day-to-day operations for the country. He put them first and tried to protect them to the best of his capability. And for that, he has now been Um, Or is now going to be rewarded with a congressional gold medal, uh, which I think is the highest honor that one can receive in America. Um, He was also the personal escort for Kamala Harris. Uh, Shout out to Kamala being the first woman, black woman, South Asian woman, vice president in United States history. A tremendous feat in itself and something that we will look back on and and and. And really break down how much of a groundbreaking uh, thing that this this is going to be. But Eugene was was uh, their personal escort, her personal escort, her and her husband's personal escort during inauguration last week. Uh, and then also he was promoted to deputy sergeant of arms uh, as well. So I think that that just goes to show, like, man, in, in a crisis, in a moment where Eugene. You know, looking out at the faces of a thousand, two thousand, maybe more just angry, violent people putting his life on the line for a country that hasn't returned that. For Eugene, I think it, it's really just a tremendous feat and a feat that I I don't think we should overlook because I'd, I'd be hard pressed to say anybody, not, not regardless of color, just anybody taking those steps and really just saying like, Yep, I'm putting myself second and everything else first. Um, I mean, that's a tremendous feat a- in itself. And I think that that should be highlighted more and more and we need more people like that. And so as we round out our people matters, uh, I'm going to steal a page out of my friend Trill Withers playbook here. And I'm going to say, Hey, as we look into this next week, um, try to do something for someone other than yourself. Um, don't go out hunting for these things. But just, you know, I'm sure that, you know, on your day to day, if you're still traveling to work, uh, if you go to the grocery store, um, if you're just walking around your neighborhood and you see someone in your neighborhood, try to do something for somebody else other than yourself this week. Um, and I think that if everybody, and I don't have a ton of listeners, but if everybody that listens to this podcast takes that approach, uh, we can have a lot of people affect and change and hopefully uh, make some good days out of non-good days for some people in our lives. Uh, we could start this trend moving forward, and, and maybe that gets the ball rolling where everybody does one good deed. And a lot of times, like, you know, you can't run the full mile. You just got to take the first step. And I think this would be the first step. And, you know, just think about that when, when you're living your everyday life this week and, and see if there's a chance for you to uh, potentially do something good for someone else this week. That's going to do it for episode three. I appreciate you all taking some time to listen to me again. Please, please, please. If you could rate and review this podcast, five stars would be tremendous. A review would be tremendous, but any feedback, uh, will be taken and much appreciated. Um, and we'll talk to you guys again here soon. See ya.